the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. All right, everyone. Uh, this is Al Fadi, and we're back again uh, to continue with this amazing live stream where we have fabulous and amazing researchers and panelists uh, who have joined us to discuss this standard Islamic narrative and the holes in that narrative. Each one of them comes at the narrative from a specific passion, specific angle, specific research uh, area, and backed up with findings, obviously. They're not talking about it from an emotional standpoint. They're talking about it from factual standpoint. And that's what we're about here, whether in my channel, Sierra International, whether on Fander Films, we are presenting facts. And we're going to ask each one of them shortly uh, to introduce also their own platforms where you can connect with them. You can benefit from some of the research and publications, whether in digital publications or maybe uh, in a written form. But all that to say is that we are doing this for the benefit of everyone, including our Muslim friends that I am hoping that are watching us right now. And just go and examine the evidence. That's all I ask for. Just go and examine the evidence. And that's all we ask about. Well, we're left with one uh, last panelist. And we are going to start this particular live stream and uh, this particular part of the podcast with him, Thomas. Thomas, thank you so much, of course, for taking the time to be with us. And I would like for you really to tell people a little bit about yourself, uh, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, obviously. And... Tell, the, tell us also if you have your own platform, your own YouTube channel, and dive into the topic, the area of expertise that you focus on when it comes to the standard Islamic narrative. My understanding, it has to do with Aramaic, of course. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Thomas Alexander. I'm from Germany. And my background is actually in computer science, which means that both by nature and by training, I'm, I would say I'm quite good at um, recognizing patterns and understanding systems, which turns out to be quite helpful when uh, studying the history of Islam. Um, so how did I even get into this? So I've always been a big, um, well, history nerd, if you will. So I've, I've always been interested in history and particularly the history of religions. And initially, actually, Islam wasn't high on my list. Um, but that kind of changed when Christoph Luxemburg um, published his book on the Syro-Aramaic origins of the Quran in the year 2000. Although at that point, I still, I, I, I wasn't all in. So I was aware of his work. I, I um, knew what he was, he was talking about, that the Quran has a, um, well, has Aramaic origins, that it started out as a lectionary read in, in Christian churches, but in non-Trinitarian Christian churches. Um. But at that point, I still didn't dig that much deeper. But that, that then changed 
roughly 15 years ago, I would say, um, when I randomly came across a radio um, program where Karl-Heinz Orlik, who at that point in time was the head of the Inara Institute, um, well, was a guest, and he talked about their research and their findings, and I was absolutely fascinated because it actually went a lot deeper than, than what I thought um, from, from just hearing about Christoph Luxemburg. And I actually started to, to dig in, to read their papers that they publish and to see what this is all about. Um, maybe one quick word on this Inara Institute. So these are um, a group of, of scholars, which is, um, they are located in Saarbrücken in Germany, but it's actually, it's not just German. So it's really a, a, an international um, yeah, well, effort. And they are sort of building on the, the old historical critical thinkers, like starting from the 19th century with uh, Nerdeke and then Ignaz Goldzier. They, they've already sort of laid the foundation. Alphonse uh, Mignana, Mignana as well. He, I think, was the first to actually propose this, that there's a lot of Aramaic um, in the Quran in the 1920s. But then this this field sort of died down a bit, and, and it was these Inara guys in the 1990s um, who, who picked this up again and brought it really to a, a bigger stage once again. And that's pretty much what I've been doing over the last 15 years. I've just um, studied mainly for my own benefit, so I didn't share much of it, until um, Jay brought me onto his channel and, and asked me to share um, my, my findings. Um, which I happily did, and now I'm currently, since since now I've already collected everything for, for, for this YouTube format, um, I've now started to actually put it together in book form, which I hope to finish some, at some point next year. It is a massive undertaking, but um, yeah, I, I, I hope <laughs> it will all turn out well. I'm also uh, trying to start a my own YouTube channel. Um, it's also on my list for the next year. Um, okay. For that, before I can bring it online, I want to pre-produce some things. So again, it's it's uh, a few um, in the future, and yeah, I'm. I guess my main point of entry was this um, Aramaic origin of the Quran, because what we find out um, when we when when we actually look at the Quran itself is that large parts of it just don't make uh, a lot of sense. Right? So. They can't really be understood. When you read the tafsir, uh, it'll it'll say something along the lines of "Yeah, the scholars can't agree" or "God knows best." So basically, yeah, um, even even the scholars don't know what, what's what's going on there. And with people like Christoph Luxemburg, um, we actually now have the the tools to unlock the, these these passages that previously were. Uh, uncomprehensible right and that's that's really what what fascinates me so much because it really opens a whole new door um for understanding the quran and um yeah i i would say that that's that's what drives me wonderful thank you so much now i'm going to ask each one of you i'm going to go back again to the beginning of the panel i'm going to ask each one of you to uh tell us um, uh, you know, of course, what are you doing uh, or what are you planning on doing on 2022? I mean, uh, Thomas already covered that for us. And then uh, I want you to start thinking about another question I'm going to ask. What is the most damaging thing 
that you've discovered when it comes to the standard Islamic narrative. So let's start with Mel again. Mel, what are you working on for 2022? Um, good question. I'm looking at the Greek influences on the Quran. Um, and the reason being is I had a guest on my channel a few weeks ago who was an Alawite, and he actually said something really interesting. He says that the Alawites view the Greek philosophers as prophets. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I wonder, is there any connection there with the Quran? And what I've discovered looking into the Quran is there are definite influences there, definite points where they, they seem to be interested in Greek philosophers, not in a systematic way, but just a kind of a casual awareness. And uh, what I was interested in is the fact that both then and now, the the community living in Syria had um, a lot of connections with Greece. There were expats from the Greek community living in Syria, quite a large population. And these were people who could speak Greek and they could speak Syriac. And so that would speak to the idea that the Quran was written up there in the north. And I think this is going to be another avenue of interest. So that's what I'm planning to explore. There's probably going to be lots of other things as well. I'm interested in the Zamzam well as well at the moment. Yeah. And the uh, mechanics of getting water to the people of Mecca. So that's also going to be a big area of interest. Wonderful. I'm glad you brought this up because me and Jay are going through uh, recording a video series right now. And uh, one of the topics I will be addressing is the well of Zamzam. And again, I want to uh, uh, let all of my panelists know that I would love to invite each one of you individually into my live stream, my own channel. Uh, hopefully starting in January, uh, according to your own schedules. And then at some point, we'll start bringing you also to the studio this way via Zoom, because I want people to really benefit from all of your findings and the research. And it's not really fair for all of you to be together because each one of you have tons of info that uh, our viewers can benefit from. But today, think of it as just a, a way to introduce your work, introduce the faces behind those names that have been mentioned numerous times. And I'm thankful for all of you, of course. Uh, Murad, um, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question, my friend, uh, uh, which is, what are you doing in 2022? But I want to address this. A question popped up a couple of times here. Uh, when we say Muhammad is the praised one, the question is in Arabic, it should have been Al-Muhammad. So I want you to take the time to answer this because I didn't want to respond to that question. It was directed basically to something you brought up. So go ahead. Yes, you see, when someone says this, he is still thinking 100% Arabic. But it's written, Muhammadun Rasulullah. So if you want to translate it, like uh, literally in English, it will be, praised be the one, not the praised one. So praised be uh, the prophet of God. The Muhammadun is, uh, in Arabic we say, sifa. It's a descriptive term. That's right. So no, you don't. you don't need the... Alif and Lim here. You don't need the the here. No problem here. And I would agree with you because even though one of the names of Allah is Ar-Rahman, no Muslim in the right mind, when you say Rahman, they would gravitate towards someone else. They're always going to think Allah, basically. And uh, and and that's why uh, even if you use a, a dis, uh, you know, uh, uh, in this case, Sifa, as you stated, uh, you, you are using a description of someone uh, that you don't have to use the definite article sometimes just to do that. Yes, and also if you look at the name Muhammad, the way it's written, it's very like, if it's for a nor normal person, it will be very narcissistic. But Jesus Christ, 
at least he thought to be God. So it fits someone who thinks he is God, not someone who is normal. If he wanted to be like uh, a term that's uh, that's normal, it would be Muhammad. So the one who, who actually does the praising. So, my friend, tell us, what are you working on for 2022? Is it the same thing? Uh, is there something you are already researching? Are there things you want to surprise us uh, and, and keep people anticipating? Yes, I will look at the Aramaic meaning of the Quran, and I will start with the very small surahs in the back of the Quran, what they really mean. And um, as a surprise for future audience, uh, it's... Uh, it's not really Unitarian like, like people think. It still has a Trinitarian element in it. And this is all cracked through Aramaic. And uh, I want to look also at the names of the surahs, what they actually mean in Aramaic. Hmm. So um, I will totally focus on the Aramaic layer. I will not really focus on geography or coins this year. Because without the Aramaic meaning of the Quran, um, like we, we are lost, you see. Yeah. Thank you for that. Looks like uh, Jay uh, Aramaic is the new way to go these days. Actually, um, yeah. and you're not going to ask me this, so I'm going to tell you right now. In uh, January, we'll, we'll be introducing a whole new paradigm. We're doing research, and I have my team in, in Britain who are researching this, and they're coming up with even more stuff. Right now, I've just been handed an 85-page research paper that's going to take this even one step further. It would not just the Aramaic, it's the whole Syriac contingent uh, that we're going to start introducing in January. We're not just going to look at the language. We're going to start looking at all the practices. We're looking at the beliefs. We're going to be looking at the doctrines. Wait till you see what we have found. And this is all coming out in January. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to whet people's appetite, but I don't want to really give it away. It's all going to be complimenting what these guys are doing, but even more so because it's just getting better and better. The more, the more scratch, the more that we scratch, the more that we find. The more that we find, the more that we shine. The more that we shine, the more they whine. Oh, how sublime. And this is what all is going to be introduced coming January. Yeah, I see some whiners in your channel, by the way. Uh, we know how to handle the whiners. We give them cheese, but that's the way we do it. So, Odin, uh, back to you. You are covering the big picture, and you're talking about uh, the uh, Caliph uh, uh, Abdul Malik. And I didn't mean, of course, to cut you off. I wanted just to make sure that uh, everybody else get the chance also to jump in. But back to you now. Uh, what is it about Abdul Malik that you felt like was so damaging to the standard Islamic narrative? And what are you doing in 2022 in relationship to the big picture? Um, the, the thing with Abdul Malik is that when you really look into him, into his beliefs, he does not appear as a Muslim. He appears as uh, a sort of uh, demigod, uh, a, a sort of equivalent to Jesus, to the Messiah who should have come to establish God's kingdom. And everything with Abdul Malik is about this. It's, it's about power. He claims to be the equivalent of the Messiah, and he also claims to be the equivalent of the Byzantium emperor. His title is Caliph title. Is like the, um, the 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 Basileus kind of Basileus title that the um, Byzantium emperor bore. Um, in in Byzantium, the emperor had power over the religion and politics, and this is exactly what the Abdul Malik did. 
So there is a sort of um, is a sort of mirror image of um, what's happening in Byzantium. Uh, besides, when we look into it, Abdul Malik bore the title Khalifat Allah and not Khalifat Rasul Allah. This is something to be considered. Why is it that we do we do not find this title Khalifat Rasul Allah before the Abbasids? So right. this, there are lots of stuff going on with uh, Abdul Malik. And I will keep on working on, on this topic in, in the next year. Um, and besides, I will keep on addressing the, the English speaking audience. I intend to publish my, my book in English. I intend also to write an article on the Quran with Dr. Edouard Marie Gallet, uh, a scientific article which will explain, um, what is what I call the Nazarene reading of the Quran. Nazarene as Jewish Nazarene, um, as the, as the, the, the Nasara that we found, the Nasara phrase, the Nasara expression that we found in, in, that we find in the, in the Quran. And it will be, um, a very scientific article, uh, telling us about, um, the different people that we find in the, in the Quran, the Kufar, who are the Kufars, who are the Nazarenes, who are the people of the books, or people of the book, people of the scripture. And when we, we, we really dig into the Quran, we find that those people are not what the standard Islamic narrative tells about. For example, about just about a, a little thing about the people of the book. When, when you just read the Quran for, for, for what it is, you see that They are not all the same. It's in Surah 3, verse 113, for example. They are not all the same. There is among the people of the book a standing community. And you see that the Quran here, and also in many other passages, gives us evidence that there was a specific community among the people of the book, the people of the scripture, the people of the sacred scriptures of this time, meaning the Jews. There was a... Um, There was a good community among them. And so what did they do? I told you about an alliance with the Arab audience. So there will be a big article about this, making all things clear. And I have many, many other projects. I'm involved in an organization here in France called Mission Ismeri, which is dedicated to helping ex-Muslims, Muslims who converted to Christianity, and dedicated to spreading the gospel to them and also to teaching people about Islam. And I intend, I intend to, to develop a, a media project with a big studio, a bit like yours, Al-Fadi. <laughs> But um, we will address the, the French and maybe Arab audience. So many, many good things to come next year. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll, I'll get back to you, of course, in a second here about the other question. But, uh, Paul, um, uh, can you also, I mean, you were talking about the Jerusalem theory again. What, what is uh, so uh, damaging in the Jerusalem theory to the standard Islamic narrative? And what are you working on for 2022 in the next few minutes, by the way, that we have here? Hi. The, what I find, the, the, what I find is, is the most, I don't like to think of it as damaging. I don't really want to. I don't really want to damage anyone or anything. But what I find is is uh, revelatory about the Jerusalem thesis is that the Quran actually makes sense. So much of the Quran, so many Muslims 
for the last 14 centuries must have sat there scratching their heads saying, why on earth does the Quran say this? Why does it say that? Why is it telling us this story of Dulcarnain? Why is it telling us the story of Moses and the fish? Why is it telling us this or that? Why was Muhammad um, going out and trying to conquer this, uh, this place of Mecca? Why was he robbing the caravan trains? Why was he uh, exiling and killing the Jewish tribe. So many, so many questions in the traditional narrative. Uh, where does the uh, where does the elephant come into it? Where does the elephant come from in Surah one hundred and five? And why does the Quran bother telling us about this this episode? Since it seems to have nothing to do with anything else. And what I find is the most um, the most uh, revelatory part of the Jerusalem thesis is that the Quran actually makes sense. If one thinks of uh, the the instruction, expel them from where they have expelled you, uh, and then you put that not in Mecca, but you look at that as uh, Jerusalem, and you look at what was going on at the time that the Quran was reportedly being announced, and you've got the byzantine sasanian War. You've got this attempt in 614 by a party of Jews to reestablish worship at the Jewish temple. And they are expelled from Jerusalem, first of all, by the, uh, by the Christian inhabitants and then by the Sasanians. And then you find that the, the Jews are then expelled from the whole of the Byzantine Empire at the end of the uh, Byzantine-Sasanian War. And yet, what we find, as Mel was saying, uh, all the early references to Muhammad have him leading military operations in Palestine in the 630s, in 634, with Thomas the Presbyter, and 637, the Gospel Fragment, or the Doctrina Jacobi. And, and you build up this, this very clear, I find very clear, very vivid picture of the Quran author inspiring people to fight, to recapture Jerusalem at precisely the time that we know that Muhammad was fighting to recapture Jerusalem, and shortly before the Arabs do, in fact, recapture Jerusalem in 637, 638. So for me, the, 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 the proof is, is very much in the pudding. The Quran makes sense if you put it into Jerusalem um, in a way that it simply doesn't make sense with if you have to create story after story after implausible story um, uh, in order to try and explain what the verses mean, you actually put it within a historical framework, and it uh, and it makes perfect sense. I find, or if not perfect sense, it makes an awful lot more sense than the traditional narrative. Yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that. In one minute, yeah, uh, what are you working on? Okay, so what I'm working on, uh, I've been working for three years on a thematic companion to reading the Quran, where I look at the Quran in uh, 100 different themes, and for each one, show uh, which are the relevant verses of the Quran, then how they relate to what the Bible tells us, and then summarize what I think is the uh, state of academic knowledge. Uh, but that's going to be quite a long project that may not complete in 2022. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to put the Jerusalem thesis into an article and I'm going to have it uh, published in, a, in, in some sort of sensible uh, um, way because I think we have learned so much over the last few years. Uh, Mel, Jay, um, 
Odin and, uh, and the rest of us. We've all learned so much. We have to start writing it down in, into some sort of academic form. So I'm going to try and lead, um, lead uh, my, my own way on this and, and write up the Jerusalem thesis as an academic article. Wonderful idea. I, I definitely agree with you, and I hope everyone will be uh, uh, willing to write uh, an academic uh, paper or an academic book, hopefully. It'd be cool if all of you actually wrote a book and each one of you have contributed to a chapter because I think it'll be fascinating. So we are wrapping up part three. And, and Thomas, don't worry, my brother, I'll be back to you in a second here. Uh, so uh, we are wrapping up part uh, three of our podcast, Let Us Reason. But we are still, uh, of course, uh, doing the live stream. This is uh, the next part will be the conclusion of this uh, two-hour-long live stream with fascinating panelists who are behind uh, the many, uh, basically, standard Islamic narrative uh, proves that it has holes uh, uh, in it. And again, I mean, I, I want to use Paul's uh, uh, way of addressing this. We're not trying to destroy anybody. We're trying to actually just shed some lights on findings that appear to be contradictory to some of the points that the narrative actually is presenting. And uh, the goal is to help all of us sift through it and find really what sticks and what doesn't. And with that in mind, I'm going to conclude now our part three of the podcast, Let Us Reason. Stay tuned for the next part, which will be in a few seconds here if you are with us live in studio. This is Al-Fadi. Over and out. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.